Psalm 48. So let's pray, and then we'll read it. Father, we are just so blessed to gather before you, Lord. You're our God, our King, our salvation. Lord, you sustain all things by the word of your power. Lord Jesus, it says in you all things consist, all things hold together. Lord, you hold our lives together, you hold this planet together, you hold the stars together, the galaxies, the universe. All by your power, Lord, by the power of your word, as you speak it forth, and as you spoke it forth at the beginning. Lord, you are sovereign over all things and over us. And we want to come underneath that sovereignty, your rule, your reign. Lord, we pray your prayer that you gave us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. So please help us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, so Psalm 48. Let's go ahead and read it together. So it says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy, hap- in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the side of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They sought and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there and pain as of a woman in birth pains. As when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. In the midst of your temple, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to death. So, quite a little psalm we have here. Um, If you remember from last week and and two weeks ago, we started in Psalm 46, and then 46, 47, and 48 are kind of a trilogy of psalms. They have a kind of a continuing theme. I believe that the theme is, or they were written in the, in the historical context when Sennacherib's army, the king of Assyria, comes against Jerusalem and he talks smack to those who are on the wall telling them you're going to drink your own urine because we're going to lay waste to you and stuff like that unless you give us a whole bunch of gold and treasures and money, which they had already been giving them to kind of pay them off. But now they've come with all these other kings and satraps. So there's this vast army in front of Jerusalem at the walls. And um, Hezekiah is in there and he prays and he decides to trust in the Lord. And so one night, the angel of the Lord comes down 
and slaughters 185,000 soldiers in the night. So they wake up. Can you imagine the children of Israel waking up and then the the armies waking up and seeing 185,000 slain soldiers on the battleground floor? Without lifting a sword, without Israel firing a single shot, God slaughtered them. The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself slaughtered every single one of them. Talk about a victory. Can you imagine that? The relief that would come to the children of Israel as they wake up and they see, oh, our threader's gone. This king has nothing on us. He can do nothing more to us. And he leaves and hastens away. But there's also a prophetic context to these three psalms, which is Psalm 46, the conquering king, Jesus Christ. Psalm 47, the reigning king. And then Psalm 48, the glorious king or the glorious kingdom of our God. And um, in Psalm 48, it's not quite as pronounced prophetically as the other psalms were. In the other psalms, it's, it's pretty plain and clear. And um, you can either read that yourself or you can go back and listen to on the podcast the two previous psalms there. Um, but this kind of comes to end. It's, and it's also interesting, in Psalm 46, we looked at Revelation 19 to see the conquering king. In Psalm 47, we looked at Revelation 20 to see the ruling king. And in Psalm 48, we're going to look at Revelation 21 for this glorious kingdom. So kind of neat how it all goes together. So let's go ahead and start off. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Then it says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So this is speaking of the city of God, Jerusalem, right? Mount Zion. It's there today. um, You know, it's also known as the, the city of David. David ruled there. The temple was there. It's not there anymore. You still have the temple mount there, but now you have a Muslim holy place on top of the temple mount. But this is Mount Zion or Mount Moriah. This is where the, the temple was and the Holy of Holies and then you had the Ark of the Covenant and what was over the Ark of the Covenant? You had the two cherubim on top of the mercy seat and then you had the glory of God, the Shekinah, God, the Shekinah of God, the manifest presence of God that would dwell between the cherubim over the Ark. So God literally dwelled in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in the Holy of Holies is where he was. And it's also the place where he promises to reign for a thousand years. And then it says, the city is beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And this is kind of a strange description because when you go to Jerusalem, it, you know, they talk about, oh, it's, it's, it's such a mountain and stuff. And it is. Our Rocky Mountains are much more grand, though. You know, much higher, much bigger. And um, actually, the Mount of Olives right next to the um, Mount Zion or Jerusalem there is actually 200 feet taller. So it is beautiful in elevation. And as you come up the hill on the highway there, we came up in a bus. You look over and I think we, no, we came in during the day. 
but you look over and you see the Temple Mount and you see Jerusalem there. And it's, a, it's quite a sight. It's an amazing sight. And I can only imagine in the days of Jesus or the time of Solomon going up those roads and then coming upon this amazingly beautiful temple and this beautiful city. I bet it was just amazing. But it is nothing compared to what will be there when Christ reigns on the earth. It also describes it as the city of the great king, um, or Mount Zion on the sides of the north. And it's really not that far north. <laughs> it's kind of interesting how, 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 the, how the psalm is describing this place. But I want us to go to Revelation 21, because I think this is actually a prophetic description of what Zion will be like. So, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation's the last book in your Bible. And we're going to the second to last chapter in your Bible. So it says in verse 1 of Revelation 21, it says, Now I saw a new heaven, And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Notice the tabernacle of men, or the tabernacle of God is a person. It's Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it says, He came and dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled among us. And so it's speaking of Jesus. He's still clothed in flesh. He is the tabernacle of God. Is God dwelling in in flesh? So it says, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now he's going to describe the new Jerusalem. So there we have the rule of the new Jerusalem, which is Christ himself. God will be with them and be their God. And um, he's going to sit on a throne. He's going to make all things new. And he declares what's going to happen to those who are outside of Christ. And then it says in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious, precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. The name and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. 
Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And the measure of the city, um, and he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. So 12,000 furlongs, or your Bible might, might say, say stadia. That is about 1,380 miles in all. So its length, its breadth, its height is 1,380 miles. This is just ginormous. Its length, its breadth, its height are equal. Then he measured its wall 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Then the, the construction of the wall was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the, fir, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh cheruslite. I'm not sure if I'm saying these stones correctly, so uh, just bear with me. The eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chiropaz, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, there shall, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is the a picture of the new Jerusalem. What this is actually going to look like, we can only take from there. But it's going to be the joy of the whole earth. Talk about beautiful and elevation. 1,380 miles high. This is insane. It's going to be in space, you know, the top of it. It's, uh, it's going to be immense. And it's a new heavens and it's a new earth. And it'll also be the joy of the whole earth. You can't tell me right now that Jerusalem is the joy of the whole earth or the temple because there is no temple. You can't tell me in the days of Hezekiah that Jerusalem was the joy of the whole earth. People hated it. They wanted to wipe it off the map. They were being harassed by the Assyrian Empire. They hated it. But there is coming a day when it will be the joy of the whole earth and everybody will want to go to it. It's going to be beautiful. Let's look at it again. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And also describes it as Zion on the sides of the north. This may be said because Jerusalem, or the Temple Mount, is north of this actual city of Jerusalem. Maybe that's what they're talking about. They're looking at it, and it's in the north. Or perhaps as the enemies come up, it's north. 
They have to come up the road north, is what some com commentators say. What's that? Why? Is something biting me? No. Ooh, that's a weird looking guy. It flies. Okay, nobody freak out. It's okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so it's Mount Zion on the sides of the north. This could also be a play on words. The, the literal Hebrew word is Zaphon. And Zaphon was a mountain in Assyria where the gods would meet together. Okay? Kind of like Mount Olympus. So, um, but instead of Zeus, you had Baal or Baal as the chief god. And this is where they would do Baal worship. I'm sure they would sacrifice their children to him. They would do all kinds of horrible things to worship the god Baal. Um, it's also where Baal was supposed to run the universe, was from Mount Zephon in, in uh, Assyria there. So why would they call it Mount Zephon? If you're reading the NIV, it actually translates it as Zephon. Um, why would they call it Zephon? Mount Moriah, the city of the great king, the one and only true God. Why would they call it that? Could it just be a slap in the face because God slaughtered the armies of Baal? The, they didn't just represent the king, they represented the God of that king, the God that that nation worshipped. And that was Baal. And so, really what it is, it's a slap in the face to their God. They're saying, our God owned your God. He destroyed your army, so he is not the chief God. Our God is. What does it say again? Mount Zion, um, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, or on the farthest reaches of Zephon. So really what they're saying is that title that you have of having the highest mountain, the, most, the place where the gods meet and where the chief god is, we have taken it over. We have destroyed you and your army. And we have put our flag. Yahweh has put his flag where Baal's flag was. And then it says, God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. So palaces or refuge, this also means like a high tower. God is known in her high towers. He is known as her mighty fortress. You could translate it. I'm just thinking about this. Is there any safer place other than to be in Jesus Christ? To be in Christ. He is our high tower. He is our mighty, mighty fortress. He is our refuge. He is that place where we can go and we can rest. He, just think about it. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. You know, he is the fulfillment of that seventh day because he died for us and he rose again. And if we believe in him, then we are in him. Right? I pulled up a, just a bunch of verses that talk about being in him. So the first one is John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him is life. To be in him, to have him as our strong tower, our mighty fortress, is to be in life. 
John 3.15, that whoever believes, you could put, places their trust in, clings to him, hides themselves in Jesus Christ, shall not perish but have eternal life. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 1, 13-14, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We have that in him. As we stake, put our lives in him, as we believe in him, as we hide in the person of Christ, Right? As we trust him as our refuge, as our strength, as our high tower, as our mighty fortress, we are safe. Colossians 2, 6-7 As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. 1 John 1, 5 This is the message which... We have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In him we have light. In him we have truth. In him we have purpose for our souls, for our lives. 1 John 3, 23 through 24. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him. So how do we abide on him? How do we put our lives in him? How do we take him as our refuge? First, by believing in him. Right? By hiding our lives in him. Second, by obeying him. By obeying his commands. There is no safety in disobedience. Right? There is no hiding in a strong fortress that he is in disobedience. It's as we abide in him and keep his commandments. And there is no safer fortress than Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 8, 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who make, also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Say, amen, we believe it. Right? We believe that. Do you know that Satan, nor any demon, can touch you in Christ? Yeah, they can assault you, they can harass you, and annoy you, and tell you lies and all kinds of stuff, but you are safe in Christ. No matter what happens here, you are safe in him. He is your high refuge that the enemy cannot get to. 
Do you know that no matter what happens here, no matter who drags you into court, no matter who persecutes you, you are safe in Christ? Do you know that no matter who comes against you, you are safe in him? Whether it's a family member or a friend or a coworker or just an enemy, you are safe in Christ. Do you know that there's no condemnation in Christ? Isn't that awesome? There is no condemnation in Christ. You know, we don't want to sin against our Lord, but if we do sin against him, what do we have? We have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How awesome is that? There is no condemnation in Christ. Do you know that you're approved in Christ? Romans uh, 16, Paul talking about, I think the guy's name was Apelles. He said, approved in Christ. I love Romans 16. It's just a whole bunch of names, but he kind of describes these people. But it's the same thing he could describe us with. Because in Christ, these things are ours. We are approved in Christ. Approved in him. Do you know that you're reconciled to God through Christ in him? That when the Father sees you, he doesn't see Jordan, the sinner. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see Gene or Ty or any of you. He sees his son. You have so identified with his son through faith that he doesn't see you. He sees his son. You are perfect in him. It's beautiful. And again, we're reconciled to him. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. Wouldn't it be horrible if it said, who are kept by your own will and strength? You're like, Lord, I don't have the strength to keep myself. The enemy is harassing me, and I want to go his way. My flesh wants to go. It wants to give up. It doesn't want to fight. It wants to give in. But it says, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our refuge is not in this world or in anything we can get in this world. No president, no kingdom, nothing. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And now the psalmist is going to tell how God made himself known as this refuge. Okay, so look at verse 4 back in Psalm 48. He says, For behold, the kings assembled, they passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them. Okay, puberty. Fear took hold of them there. And pain as of a woman in birth pains, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. And I just have to ask, I mean, so just imagine this. You have this Assyrian army coming against Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of them. You know, 185,000 were slaughtered by the, by the Lord, but we know that others retreated. So how many were there? It's like all the kingdoms of the earth, led by Sennacherib, came against Jerusalem. Because it was during the Assyrian Empire. And so 
he actually owns all these little vassal kings. And so the, all these kings come up against Jerusalem. And what is it they see? What is it that would make them tremble? What is it that would trouble them? Could it be the armies of God? The angel armies? I think of um, Elisha's servant. So the king, one of the kings is coming against Elisha and he sends this army out to kill him or to bring him back and to arrest him. And uh, his, Elisha's not afraid at all. But his servant is terrified. And so Elisha prays for his servant. He says, he says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The mountain was full of chariots of fire all around Elisha. Could this be what they saw? What happened when Jesus rose from the dead and one angel sat on the rock on the stone that was rolled away? All those Roman soldiers fell down as if they were dead. They fainted from fear at the sight that they saw. Imagine a multitude of these angels. Would that not cause them to be terrified? Or did they see the pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel of the Lord, that would cause them to fear so greatly? Or maybe it's speaking of when Sennacherib's army awoke and sees the 185,000 slain on the battlefield without a single arrow fired from Israel. Just dead. I mean, I mean, just imagine that. No arrows sticking in them, nothing. Just dead. Just carcasses. That would cause you to tremble. Or perhaps they're looking at the new temple that comes down from heaven. I mean, when they see that, 1,300 and 80 miles tall and wide and long. Imagine the fear that would come upon any enemy of God or even the millennial kingdom when they see Jesus Christ riding on the clouds and he sets up his kingdom there in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and all the armies of the Antichrist, all the armies of the world are terrified. So again, I believe this is Prophetic. But what happens when they see this great sight? It says they marveled. They're astonished, dumbfounded, perplexed. They don't even know what to think. Imagine climbing up Mount Zion there on the road and then the city's in view. And they're just marveling at it. They don't even know what to think. All they can think of is death is going to be too good for us. Death is too kind for us. They're going to be executed by the Lord of hosts. And it says they were troubled, terrified, is the meaning of the word. Just absolutely terrified. And it says, and they hastened away. They ran away, Barnes Note says. They fled in confusion. The idea in the whole verse is that of panic leading to a disorderly flight, disorderly retreat. Everybody running every which way, just in sheer terror. And many times when you read the Old Testament, God would put a fear on an army and they would just start killing each other because they're so afraid, they're so panicked that, hey, you might be the enemy. They just start wiping each other out. 
And then he likens them to a woman when birth pains come upon them. And we see this kind of analogy a lot in the Bible, especially in prophet Jeremiah. He's always talking about it was like a woman in birth pains. That's how much it hurt. That's how um, distressed they are. And those who have had babies, especially without an epidural, really know what that's like. Hopefully everybody here took an epidural because we live in the 20th century and you might as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, I remember when my wife had our, our last one and we barely made it to the hospital in time for her to, to um, get the epidural. They had to give her kind of like a, one that would just kind of take the edge off. It wasn't the full thing. And one, I thought oh, she was going to put my teeth in my throat because I kept making jokes, and that's what I do when I get nervous and I'm stressed out. I say stupid things. And um, the other thing, I just she was in pain. Like, she wanted to just run away from the pain but couldn't. It's insane how much that hurts. Us guys can try to say that we know what it's like, but we don't. We could probably lose an arm and it wouldn't be as bad. And then it says this, when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So ships of Tarshish were, during the ancient time, that was the naval fleet of the world. That was the greatest fleet of ships. But imagine a hurricane just coming. The greatest that men can put on the water is just dashed to pieces by a hurricane. So he says, that's what their armies are like. The armies that come against God, that is what they are like. And now just imagine, as Israel realizes that they've been saved, that God has come to their aid, come to their rescue, destroy the armies that are coming against them. And they say this, they say in verse 8, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. As we have heard, so we have seen. What do we hear? I mean, I'm sure they had read the Old Testament. They read about the wilderness wanderings and how God came to the aid of his people, how he gave um, Joshua the land, how in the time of the judges, God would raise up salvation for them, right, and do many mighty works, They've heard about all these things, but now they have seen it. Now they have seen it. And I have a very hard time because a lot of the time I'm living off of God's press clippings. I'm living off of what I've heard. I'm living off of what I've read, and I believe it. But I also want to experience his salvation, and I have. Through Jesus Christ, the day I accepted him, the day I received him, the day when I had peace, overwhelming peace. But now, you know, we hear about revivals and all this stuff in in the past. We read the book of Acts and we see all the works of God and we hear about the first great awakening in America you know, through George Whitfield and all these guys and the second great awakening and the Jesus movement and all this stuff. And we hear about it, but we have not seen it. I have not seen it with my own eyes. I want to see it. I want to see God be glorified and magnified beyond what he is now, beyond what I've ever seen. You know, in in the Bible it says, his works declare that his name is near. His works declare that his name is near. I want to see his works. 
I want to see his power. I want to see him glorified. I don't want to just hear about it. I don't want to just hear about it. I want to literally see it with my own eyes. And so I'm praying for that. Lord, I can't live off your press clippings forever. I want to see your power. I want to see your glory. I want to see you move and work in people's lives. I want to see and hear of you and, 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 and see what you're doing. So pray with me in that. Pray with me in that. And then verse 9, We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. And loving kindness there is the Hebrew word. Anybody know what it is? Anybody? Bueller, Ferris, Bueller. It's the Hebrew word chesed, right? His covenant love, his covenant mercy, his covenant loyalty. Okay, anytime I ask if you guys know a Hebrew word, that's probably going to be the one, okay? What's that? That's Greek. <laughs> so chesed, it's talking about his Covenant faithfulness to his people. Okay? In the, um, in the New Testament, we see his covenant faithfulness through Jesus Christ. You know, and what would they be thinking of? His covenant faithfulness. Well, what does it say? We have thought, O oh God, on your, in your loving kindness, in the midst of your temple. What is in the temple? The presence of God over the ark, over the mercy seat, Right? What's inside the ark? The law of God. The Ten Commandments, right? Why is it there? It's a, it's a testimony against the people. But what covers the law? The mercy seat, where the blood is sprinkled every year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus, when he rose from the dead and, 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 and they go into his tomb, and what do they see? They see an angel sitting at the foot and an angel where his head was. Right? What picture does that bring to mind? It brings to mind the mercy seat. On the top of the mercy seat, you have the two cherubim, the two angels that are facing each other and looking down with their wings spread out. Right? They're looking at the blood. You can only imagine that's what these angels were doing in the tomb. In, in Romans chapter 3, it talks about Jesus being our propitiation. Literally in Greek, halisterion means mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the one who covers us from the law. He is the one who removed God's wrath by the gift of his own life. He is the one who makes that covenant with us. Right? It's an unbreakable covenant. It's a covenant that God will never break. That if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You, you belong to him. You are now his. He has bought you with the price of Jesus Christ's blood. So we have thought, O oh God, on your loving kindness, on your covenant mercies, on your covenant love in the midst of your temple. Isn't that what we do here? We think about the covenant that Jesus Christ has made with us. And do you think God's pleased with that? Yes. I think it's in Malachi. It says, I have written down your words as a memorial because you spoke to each other about me. 
We think about his loving kindness here. And then verse 10, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to all the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the end of the earth. So again, we have this theme, and it's, it's so much bigger than what Jerusalem has ever been. So is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. So it doesn't just speak of that time then. It speaks of the future time that we're awaiting. And then it says in verse 11, Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. To all those who surrounded Jerusalem, they've been defeated. And so what are they told? They're saying, go around. Number the towers. Are they all there? Is one of them destroyed? Go and mark the bulwarks. Literally examine them. Is there any damage to the wall? The bulwarks are the defensive wall of the city. Is there any damage at all? No. They're, seeing, they're looking at God's faithfulness. Can you imagine when we get to heaven and our souls are intact? Can you imagine at the resurrection when Jesus resurrects our very bodies? And we can look at ourselves and be like, there's no cancer. There's nothing there. There's no evidence of the enemy. There's none whatsoever. Won't every tear be wiped from our eye at that time? Won't we just rejoice? But we get so caught up and so busy thinking about all the problems we have right now instead of looking forward to that glorious day. Look forward to the glorious day. Don't focus on the things that make you bitter and the things that make you sad and the things that make you upset. Look to Christ. Do you know that we always have a bright future in Christ? We always have a bright future in him. Just imagine you go to the doctor and he does give you a terrible report. You're going to die. And just... Six weeks, or a month, or a year, you are going to die. You have cancer. It's incurable. And if we give you chemo, it's probably going to kill you because it's so aggressive. What can you say? Maybe you'll say, yeah, give me the chemo. I'm going to test my chances, and that's fine. But even through that, you can say, I still have a bright future. They can't, nobody can take that away from me. No report can take that away from me. No election no civil unrest, no war can take away my bright future. This life is just a vapor. It's here and it's gone. And what do we have awaiting for us? Life eternal in the presence of joy himself. What do you say? At my right hand is fullness of joy, or in my presence is fullness of joy, and at my right hand pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. We have that in him. And we know that when we die, I love, I love 2 Corinthians. You know, it talks about us, one of these days we're going to put off this old tent, speaking of our bodies, you know, that's getting worn out and beat down. But when that happens, we will be swallowed up by life. Swallowed up by life. 
That's what it is like to die in Jesus. It's not to die and be dead. It's to be swallowed up by life. It's beautiful. So we have a bright future in Christ. So mark, number the towers. Mark well the bulwarks. Right? Know that the victory is in Christ. And then verse 14, the last verse, it says, For this is God, our God, forever and ever. Or literally, this is our God from eternity to eternity. The eternal one. For this God, our God, the eternal one, he will be our guide even to death. Or literally, and I love this. You know, almost every commentator notes this. He will be our guide even beyond death. Even beyond death. Even beyond death. We think death is the end. No! He guides us through that and past it to our Lord Jesus Christ and to our inheritance eternal. What a hope we have. What a hope we have in Christ. Are you guys happy? Are you guys joyous? We should be. Look what we have. When you're reading your Bible, note these things. Notice them. Let them bring you hope. Let them bring you joy as you believe them. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll sing another song together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It tells us so much but I get the feeling that it only scratches the surface. For you are infinite. You are limitless. And we will never exhaust the knowledge of who you are and what you have in store for those who love you. It says, no eye has seen nor ear heard the things that God has for those who love him. Lord, we thank you so much. I pray that no bad news no trial, nothing that we go through here would ever cause us to lose our joy. Lord, we struggle in so many ways. Lord, we are assaulted by the enemy. Every single one of us are afraid. I imagine that's one of the reasons why you call us sheep. Fear permeates us. But you say that perfect love casts out fear. Lord, let your love be made perfect in us. We have heard, so let us see your glory, your goodness, your power, your works. Lord, we love your press clippings. They glorify you. Your word glorifies you. It tells us who you are, what you've done. History proclaims it throughout the centuries, throughout the last two millennia. But we are looking forward to what you will do as well, Lord. We want to see it with our own eyes. We want to see your works. We want to see your name proclaimed and glorified. We want to see your enemies terrified, Lord. We want to see people come to repentance. Whether it's one at a time or in great numbers, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Let us be filled this week. 
Let us bubble over and water everything around us. Help us to be strong in you because you have the victory. Help us not to shrink back in fear, but to believe to the saving of the soul. We love you, Jesus. And we praise you and we thank you for what you've done for us. We look forward to that day when we see you face to face. So please help us. Empower us, strengthen us. In your name, amen.